In this bonus episode of the Ski Podcast, I talk with Helen Coffey, travel editor of The Independent and author of the book Zero Altitude, How I Learned to Fly Less and Travel More. We discuss her background in skiing, her time at the uh, Telegraph Ski and Snowboard magazine, and her decision in 2020 to give up flying completely, a significant and possibly unique decision for a travel journalist. Let's have a listen to our chat. Great, I'm delighted to welcome Helen Coffey, travel editor of The Independent and author of Zero Altitude for this bonus episode of the Ski Podcast. Hi Helen, how are you? Hi, I'm great, thanks. Uh, Sun is shining after uh, it was raining recently, which obviously we need the rain, but it's quite nice to see the sun again. So feeling perky. Excellent. Now you've been on the show before. Uh, Now at the time you had already made your flight free pledge but since then, uh, you've published a book about your experiences. That is called uh, Zero Altitude. The uh, subtitle is How I Learned to Fly Less and Travel More. And I'm very interested in that. And we'll, we'll talk about that uh, in due course. But one of the reasons our paths have crossed is that your background is in the ski industry. Um, you know, you previously worked at the Telegraph Ski and Snowboard magazine uh, before moving to the Independent, where you are now. I wonder if we could start off by finding out a little bit more about your ski background. You know, wh- when and, and where did you first start skiing? So, I mean, I wish I could tell you where, but I, it's funny I've ended up working in travel because I have such a poor geographical memory for the places <laughs> I've been. So I learned to ski probably when I was about 15, 16, there was a, a school trip and I begged my mum, begged and begged to go and she said, all right. Um, but, you know, it's quite... Even on a school trip, it's quite an expensive thing, isn't it? Because especially if you're new to it um, and you haven't gone with your parents as a kid, you sort of, we had to have some lessons beforehand at the dry ski slope. Luckily, I grew up in Hemel Hempstead, so we we did actually have a dry ski slope, which is now the snow centre, yeah. a real snow slope where you can go and learn. Um, back, in, back in day, it wasn't quite as fancy as it is now. Um, we had to do that and then you know obviously go and you're you're in your little ski school and um I don't think I was particularly good but I I remember it was in Italy that's all I can give you it was some kind of resort in Italy that was probably quite cheap uh we drove the entire way there on a coach obviously um one of the because I went on two school trips one of the times it broke down overnight and it felt like it took about three days. I'm sure it didn't, but um, it, it was a long time in the precursor to having like an iPad or a smartphone on a coach. You know, we're talking, you know, cassette player or discman to keep you occupied. So, um, but I do remember I did just loving everything about it, like the mountains, the scenery, the food, the, I mean, not the apres in the way I would maybe enjoy it now at, at 16, but still that that sort of off-slope side of it as well. And I just knew it was something that I really wanted to continue. So I left it a few years and then at uni, we kind of organised a trip, me and my friends, um, of very varying abilities. I would put myself as like extremely amateur but very, very overconfident. Uh, (laughs) I would be attempting all these kind of runs that I really shouldn't have been on. But thankfully, you're very bouncy at 20. You just kind of, you know, (laughs) you're down and then you're up again. I wouldn't ski that way now. Um, But again, I just thought, oh, my gosh, I love this so much. How could I do more of it? I don't have any money. (laughs) Um, So me and my friend decided to do a season after we'd finished university. 
so we both both went over to Les Arc together um, and we were weekend reps. So we just worked the weekends. We skied the whole week. Uh, it was a really, really excellent way to kind of get the most out of a season and really, really, um, you know, I'm not saying I ended that brilliant at skiing, but... Um... Really, lots of things you said there I found really interesting. Firstly, that you went on a school trip. So important. So many people I speak to, you know, their first experience of skiing was going out on a school trip. And as you say, you know, the cost can be quite significant, even when you're travelling out by uh, coach. Really interested to hear that you learn at Hemel Hempstead, because earlier this week I interviewed Warren Smith for another uh um special bonus episode that i'm going to release and i don't know if you know but warren smith is from hemel hempstead he also um learned at a hemel dry slope and ended up teaching there and bizarrely he also went on a school ski trip where the coach broke down on the way now that would be quite weird if uh, you were both on the same trip or maybe it just says something about school operators uh, uh of that time that uh, you know this is a fairly uh, typical uh, part of it um, however, I can definitely relate to uh, what you're saying about the lack of, uh, you know, no mobile phones and uh, streaming internet, etc. I went on a school trip where uh, we had a VHS recorder with one screen that sat up at the top at the front of the coach. And it played a movie by um, a comedy act from the 80s called Cannon and Ball, which are loosely described as, as comedy. And that was replayed again and again for the 24 hours or so that it took us. So... So, kids, if you're listening today, uh, Coach Travel has improved a lot since then, I reckon. Yeah, totally. We had that VHS as well, you know, but I, things had moved on because they definitely did change the movie. So I feel a bit superior to you now. <laughs> and you said you went out to do um, a season in Les Arts. You were just working as a, a weekend rep. How, how, how did that work out then? I do know... Um, some of these jobs that most people typically would be thinking about, you know, they go out, they work for a tour operator, let's say they're chalet staff or uh, or something like that. Were you just repping buses from the airport? Was that how that worked? Yeah, pretty much. So um, big operators did it at the time. So we were working for what was uh, Crystal Thompson First Choice. I think they're all bundled together. Um, and... But they, because they had so many people um, coming in and out on those transfer days, uh, it was worthwhile in some resorts having people that, yeah, would just hop on buses, get people to the airport, bring them back, sell them all their lift passes, their lessons, etc. on the coach. Um, and that was pretty much you done. You'd have to go and drop off some lift passes the next day, which should have been an easy job. But at the beginning of the season, I remember you have no idea how shambolic it is when you when you start off a season in a new resort if no one's worked there before. You've got these kind of, I mean, I'm not sure if it's still the case now, but you'd have these people who are really quite young, sort of in management positions in resort, trying to figure out logistics of, of buying enough lift passes. I re it took at least a month before that process was really smooth. It was quite stressful. Um, but it was it was a great way to do it because you got you didn't get really get paid, but you got your accommodation and you got your ski high for the season and you got all your lift pass. So it's sort of all you needed was money for food and and that was it. That sounds like the, the perfect uh, ski season. Now, I did uh, several ski seasons myself, and I know what you talk about, about selling the lift passes. Definitely a skill in being able to get through a coach of people, being able to sell them ski hire, ski school, lift tickets, uh, between whichever airport you were at and arriving into resort. If you're in Les Arc, I'm thinking that you probably had like a, you know, you had a longer 
uh, transfer. You know, when I was doing some of the three valleys, you get a shorter transfer, you've got less time to be able to do it. But it's still a challenge when you've got a full coach, particularly, um, I think I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but uh, you know, back in the day, you certainly didn't have the, uh, the um, portable credit card machines. So I had these chunky things where you used to swipe the card back and forth if people wanted to pay by credit card. Yeah, we had those. Yeah, Yeah. there was absolutely nothing electronic. There was just that that what it what the paper, whatever you call it, where you're making it in triplicate, and everything was written down. It's amazing actually to me now to think that I I assume it's moved on leaps and bounds. (laughs) Well, for sure, and I think one of the other differences, perhaps uh, you know, between uh, uh, now and then, is that uh, we used to require a photo from everyone for their lift ticket so as they paid you you'd write on the back of the photo their name and whether they were taking a six-day pass or a three valleys pass or a Courcheval pass etc i'm guessing paradiski and lozark etc would apply and you know you're saying a bit how shambolic it was on the sunday morning when you're getting your passes you'd be at the lift pass office and you'd be going through and you'd have ordered a certain number and at the end you'd have one six-day Courcheval pass left and one photo that on the back said you know, seven day, three valley pass. And you're oh, right. Okay. What's going on here? This, you know, how are we going to solve this? Oh God, it's bringing back memories. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so you did, um, you know, uh, uh, season in uh, uh, Les Arcs. Um, it doesn't seem like a, uh, a natural segue uh, into journalism. How, how did that come about that you ended up, you know, working at the Telegraph Skin Snowball magazine? Um, I think so. I, I wasn't a journalist at the time. I hadn't studied journalism. I'd studied drama um, and had various a sort of portfolio of different jobs after this season, trying to figure out what I'd like to do. Um, but much of it was uh, kind of working with with kids in various ways, doing workshops. So some drama workshops, some career workshops. Um, and I, I sort of enjoyed it. But it was a very, very tricky kind of career to manage working for different people different places at that age not getting paid very much um and I just thought I need something where I feel like I can build a career and I'd always really liked writing and even in my degree the bit I really loved was script writing and I thought well that seems like a bit of a monk's game as well for making money at the beginning so what would be a way to make money from writing journalism um so I did a diploma at my NCTJ, which is how lots of people start um, getting to journalism. And then uh, my first job was incredibly boring <laughs> business magazine, which was for entrepreneurs. Um, and I don't really know how I got the job because I knew nothing about business or entrepreneurialism. Um, but I thought, OK, great. That's a you know, it's a first job. But I kind of thought, oh, it would be really nice to write about something I was actually passionate about and interested in. Um, and then just saw that the job at the yeah Telegraph Ski and Snowboard magazine, at the time it wasn't owned by the Telegraph and it got, it got bought by them. And they were just advertising for like a junior sub-editor position, so very bottom, bottom, bottom of the pile. But I thought, I, you know, I don't care what I'm doing. What I'd love to do is like... L- be writing around ski and snow sports which is something I really really like doing um and yeah it was a great team to work with and I learned so so much about skiing but also just about journalism and editing and writing because it was such a a high quality kind of production um and sort of worked my way up so went to being a writer and then eventually the digital 
editor of the, the Ski and Snowboard site um, on the Telegraph travel section. So you, you, you sound very modest about that, how you work your way up if you came in just at a, a kind of sub-editor at the uh, at the bottom. But I'm guessing that you were there at a kind of period when we were seeing more of a transition from print to digital, because um, maybe that online editor position didn't really exist to start off with. Yeah, yeah, it was an interesting time, as lots of publishers have now been going through the last five or more years, really, that kind of not just pivoting, but wholesale going, okay, this is the most important space in many ways. Obviously, there's still room for print and print still beautiful and important. But in terms of where the kind of revenue comes from, um, it's all online. So it was also really instrumental learning about that digital side of things and, and things like, you know, SEO and Google and what you, what you need to do to make something pop up when someone searches for, you know, best ski resorts in France so that yours is the article they see because hopefully it's also a really good article so you're not just trying to trick people you're trying to get them really good content that you've created so yeah like a really really interesting time to do it. For sure I mean you know what you talk about there SEO uh, and uh, you know trying to I'm not going to say game Google but trying to get Google to work on your site is you know a big part of what I do in my day-to-day uh, job. And unfortunately, you know, there, there was a time uh, where you could game Google, but that doesn't really work anymore. Now, you know, it does uh, rely on, as you were saying, having a, you know, good quality uh, and material. It obviously helps if you're at somewhere like the Telegraph or the Independent, where you have lots and lots of uh, link equity uh, within the website itself as well. Um, but so you were at the Telegraph, uh, you moved on, I had a quick look at your online CV and LinkedIn, <laughs> moved on to the Express uh, for a bit, where you said you were, you were posting five stories a day uh, there. That's kind of pretty uh, high output. <laughs> Yeah, we we affectionately call it in the industry um, journalism, <laughs> journalism <laughs> because yeah. you're just churning out stories. Um, and I was only there for a few months, but again, I, I guess it's sort of a useful skill is being able to turn things around really quickly. Um, but you know, for me, not losing not losing quality or integrity is yeah, it's not easy to do. Um, but I, you know, I have a certain level of professional pride where I'm like, if my name's on it, I can't, it can't be absolute garbage because people can read it and that's, you know, that's not okay. Um, so, yeah, I felt like that that was another learning curve. I Very, very different pace and dynamic to the Telegraph, as you could imagine. And then it was really, really different again when I joined the Independent. So it's been like quite a nice mix of things to get new skills and new experience. Yeah, I think, you know, while it might not sound like the, uh, the the best job, as you say, you learn from all of these different uh, uh, areas. Um, the only thing I can come up with that might compare to that is early on in the podcast at the Pyeongchang Olympics, uh, Jim, my co-presenter and I at the time, we decided we we're going to do an episode every day during the Pyeongchang Olympics. And <laughs> as you say, when you're kind of, uh, you know, I'm quite sure how much it was journalism. I enjoyed what we were talking about, but it certainly gets you more efficient at performing the basic tasks when you're doing something so often uh, like that. Uh, but so you you arrived at your home now at the Independent and you've you know built your way up to become a travel editor. The real reason I wanted to uh, have you on the podcast just now is several years ago, I think it was in 2020, you made a commitment to go flight free. Now, you know, I had my own sort of 
Damascene moment with my daughter in, in 2019, inspired by uh, uh, Greta. Uh, and I, I founded uh, um, the lobby group Ski Flight Free, just trying to encourage more people to, uh, to travel by alternatives to flying. But that's very different from the commitment that you've made. I haven't been able to cut out flying from my life completely. I think I'm right in saying that for the last two and a half years, you haven't flown at all now. Yeah, not since. Um, I think my last flight was, was either October or November 2019. So nothing since then. Well, I mean, that is, you know, very impressive, but even more so given the fact that you you work in travel, you are a travel uh, editor. Uh, it's very inspiring. I mean, it, surely it must have been exceptionally difficult for you to be able to do that, or has it been relatively straightforward? It's It's been a bit of both. Um, obviously, a very strange time to do it because I made my pledge in 2020. Um, so basically, there's a campaign called Flight Free UK, which is, encourages you to sign up for one year at a time, um, saying I won't fly for the next year because that feels a little bit less daunting and more manageable than saying I'll never fly again. So I sort of with great, you know, yeah, great ceremony was like I'm signing the 2020 pledge um and then and then COVID happened so no one was really flying anywhere and no one was traveling anywhere and so I guess in one sense you could say oh well that made it easy um which I mean I suppose it did in one sense it was it was very frustrating though because as countries sort of would open up and then close again it was much easier if you could fly to take uh, those opportunities and actually take advantage and go right we've taken France off well this wasn't even red and amber green list yet this was like travel corridors if you remember that time yeah. so we had these places where if you came back you wouldn't have to quarantine um, and colleagues and friends of mine really jumped at those opportunities and for me it was a bit like oh well can I get there by train no okay by the time I made the decision they'd be off the travel corridors list and I'd have to quarantine for two weeks anyway um so it was challenging um and especially yeah with the, with the different traffic light system lists I remember there was a time when the greenness just had absolutely no countries you could reach terrestrially you could not reach any of them overland and so it was really depressing because <laughs> it was this like real excitement about finally and then I thought ah not for me though <laughs> you just have yeah to I mean when, when you made that decision uh you know to go uh flight free what did your I wonder what your your colleagues or uh you know the uh, editor at the time thought of that did they say like are you sure you want to do this um, no, they were really, really encouraging. Um, I think I'm very lucky that I work somewhere where they'd already decided they wanted to do lots more climate coverage. And it coincided with them starting a new climate section, hiring new climate reporters. So there's a real push towards that anyway. So I kind of remember floating this idea um, and the, the editor of The Independent at the time, yeah, there was never any question of like, you can't do that. You work on the travel team. Um, it was all very like, this sounds great. You can write a column about it. Um, and so that, yeah, I, it was a very kind of exciting idea and project. And it might have felt different, actually, had I had people in charge going, mm, we don't like this. We're not happy about this. Obviously, we can't stop you, but we're not going to encourage it. That would have been a really, really different proposition. 
Yeah, and you mentioned um, Anna Hughes before from uh, Flight Free UK. Actually, had her on the podcast before, and we had a, an episode dedicated towards uh, um, train travel. Um, she obviously set up, you know, Flight Free UK as a as a lobby group as well, and trying to get people to make this uh, pledge. We haven't really, to me, and perhaps to you, it's kind of self evident why you'd make a decision to try and you know cut a lot of carbon out of your life. But what? tipped you to make the decision uh well it was funnily enough it was really an interview with anna um and several of her pledges so people had said they're going to stop flying for the climate um because i was writing a feature about it and there were there was lots of talk uh mid 2019 there was all sorts of stuff going on around around the climate crisis and one of those things was this idea in sweden of, of flight shame or flixcam it's probably not how you pronounce it but anyway um and about how loads of people in sweden had uh, had decided to stop flying and had coined this term to sort of suggest that if you were getting on a flight you should probably feel a bit bad about it at this stage and it's not something you should feel braggy about and aspirational and posting your pictures on social media about you on the plane as lots of us did um and so I thought okay well that'll make a, a nice feature but I didn't think anything about it I was just like oh have we got some people in the UK who are doing similar and then I don't know it's funny how you get these these kind of ideas or or something plants a seed because I interviewed all those people was putting the feature together and I, it just kind of hit me like oh I feel like I should probably do this. And I'd never thought about it before. I'd never even thought about cutting down flying before. So I don't know why it was this particular time and thing that changed my mind. But I, just, I think speaking to those people who were very passionate, but very um, sympathetic, they weren't, you know, judgmental or or kind of looking down on me because I fly all the time. They were just explaining very clearly, this is where we're at. This is why we need to change um and yeah I just I just kept thinking about it and the idea wouldn't go away and I thought I probably need to try this because not just from an individual perspective more of a, a like yeah as you say if you're a travel editor doing it it has a lot more kind of impact a lot more influence a lot more you know you're able to normalize it on a, a much bigger platform um so yeah that's kind of what sparked it it's a very similar period of time uh, to, you know, when I decided to make more changes uh, in my life to try and, uh, you know, reduce uh, our carbon footprint, see what I could do to influence within the ski industry that uh, as well. I'm guessing at some point relatively early on, uh, you decided, right, uh, there's a lot of material here, I can convert this into a book and the idea for Zero Altitude came together. Did that happen quickly or did that happen after you'd started to, you know, take more and more journeys that didn't involve flying? Uh, that it happened quite quickly so I I had the idea that I wanted to do it um you know ran it ran it past my bosses etc and then it yeah it almost came to be wholesale as in you should try and do this thing also if you're going to do it yeah you should you should write a book I hadn't written a book before always wanted to obviously as most journalists will tell you um and I just thought this was the right idea I thought you know not just oh it's very zeitgeisty or whatever but equally I didn't think enough had been written about what you know really laying out what the actual damage is what the alternatives are you know whether it's as bad as we think looking into things like 
carbon offsetting and future tech and whether that's a good alternative or not. Um, and I wanted to combine that, like lots of research with actual like travel loggy kind of experiences. So, you know, taking an interrail trip and um, taking ferries to places and, and exploring the UK and all these these different things that you could try. So the idea is that it was going to be a combination of like, you know, this these are the facts. This is where we're at. This is what is important. But also not all doom and gloom. Here's some hope and inspiration for how you can still travel a lot and really enjoy yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think that probably sums it up quite well. I mean, the book the, the book is covering lots of different areas. It's not like you mentioned flight shame or flig scam before. You know, I'm very keen to impress upon people. I'm not trying to make anyone else feel ashamed about flying. That's something that you might feel yourself. Would much rather focus on the positive side of things. You talked about um, how people were being discouraged from bragging about their uh, their flights around oh. the world. I personally feel shame about them. Maybe that's something that they can identify. You talked about people kind of maybe bragging on social media. There's another Swedish word that I came across, which I really like. Again, pronunciation probably really bad, but I think it's tagskurt, which is bragging about train travel. I'd much rather focus on the, uh, on the positives uh, there. And, you know, in the book, um, in the book itself, you know, you're covering, you know, the, the stats, you know, the reasoning as to, you know, why people um, should be cutting down their uh, flying, but also like the benefits of it as well. The uh, one of the chapters is called At a Rails Pace, uh, you know, and looking at the, the benefits of just traveling a bit more slowly. There is that element that people don't necessarily consider about train travel. Yeah, definitely. I think we... We now expect everything so quickly, just in general, in life. Um, we're very unused to having to wait for things or be patient. And sometimes I think we forget what the benefits of that are, the sort of the joy of delayed gratification for something, as well as just the experience itself, you know, in the in the getting there. And I really, I know it sounds a bit sort of wishy-washy philosophical, but I really do believe that now, that... There's something so magical about the journey being part of your trip and being excited about that part of it. I, I feel that way every time I get on a train or a boat, really. I, I never used to feel that way about getting on a plane. What I would feel excited about was the getting there. So you get on the plane, you're excited. But I mean, some people love planes and that's fine. But I think for most of us, we don't get on the plane like, oh, my gosh, I've been looking forward to this plane journey for six months. <laughs> like, we're just like, get me there now. And especially for lots of us, if what we're doing is short or medium haul on a little tin box of a plane that's got no legroom and no amenities and nothing nice to eat. It's just something to endure, isn't it? It's not something to enjoy. Um, which is not the same when you're doing slow travel. The like the travelling is really integral part of your holiday, and it's sometimes the best bit. For sure. I mean, you know, I'm obviously very biased, but I love travelling uh, by train. But particularly, you know, when you're going to the mountains, because some of the journeys that you take are just so beautiful, going alongside uh, lakes and into the mountains uh, themselves. Uh, you know, sometimes I, I haven't cut out flying completely like yourself. And so on those occasions when I do take uh, flights, I have offset. Uh, now, I've, you know, I've done my own uh, research uh, on this uh, and, 
you know, I'm not going for uh, offsetting schemes that involve, you know, planting forests, etc. something more direct. But I'm wondering what your view, you have got a chapter in the book about offsetting. Now, what's your view about offsetting? Do you think it can actually work? Um, I'm going to try and give like not a full answer because it's so complicated, which is why it's an entire chapter. It's, I think it's the longest chapter as well. Um, I'm really, I've got mixed feelings about it. Um, lots of campaigners uh, in working in the environment space are just, uh, just absolutely no. They like, no, offsetting's bad, don't do it. Um, I think I have a more nuanced um, impression of it from talk, speaking to people. I think there are lots of schemes that are good and do actually cover everything that needs to be covered, as in they are doing additional carbon savings, then, you know, not kind of exploiting Indigenous people. They're, they're not double counting. Like, you know, they do what they say on the tin. And there are certification standards that are very rigorous in making sure that they do that. Um, and I think this is the thing. I think with all sustainability stuff, we want people to reduce first. You reduce as much as you possibly can. And then the next stage is the stuff that you have to do. So the flights that you have to take, I think that's when you do offset. But you do, I mean, never, ever use the one that the airlines suggest to you, I would say, because I just don't think they're trustworthy. Um uh, because because they're not they don't have the transparency to know exactly what scheme you're paying into and they're normally very cheap so like Ryanair for example will say do you want to add on two quid to offset and I'm sorry but two pounds is not offsetting your flight it's not doing anything really so if you're going to do it do it properly with some kind of engagement um with some research with a scheme that you you feel confident is legitimate and if you do that it probably will be a bit pricier it might cost you like 20 I think it's something like 20 quid a ton something like that it will it will not be cheap and easy <laughs> for, for sure I, you know I did my own research I'll put a link in the show notes but I ended up choosing an organization called My Climate uh, that I come across when I was in Switzerland uh, uh, before but uh, hopefully <laughs> well I'm pretty sure uh, from the research that that was uh, is one of the uh, better offsetting schemes but yeah and you mentioned like sometimes you know for people there is really no alternative than to uh, uh, fly what kind of structural changes do you think are required to help people to go flight free to give people more options well I mean I think we have to accept that in some cases that there's nothing that will really help as in if you've got family members who are in Australia you're, you're going to have to fly to see them unless you agree to never see them again. And I would never ask anyone to do that. Um, so we'll, you know, we'll leave that to one side. But in terms of our, our being so reliant on aviation, um, I think there are several things that need to change. One of which is that flying, well, it's already sort of happening, actually. So we had such a long era of really, really cheap flights which in many ways were great and, you know, help people see the world. And it seems like a really positive thing. Um, but actually, they're too cheap. They did not at all reflect the impact that flights have on our planet. Um, and the only reason they can get away with them being so cheap is because they get all kinds of loopholes. So things like um, you might be aware that uh, kerosene, which is aviation fuel that goes in the plane, does not get taxed. Um, every other kind of fuel gets taxed. <laughs> but for some reason, plane fuel does not. Um, so they're already got, you know, a real advantage over other modes of transport. Um, 
I mean, in the UK, we have APD, Air Passenger Duty, which was originally designed to be like a climate tax, but they didn't really ring fence that money. And as far as I'm aware, they've never really used it for anything particularly amazingly climate worthy. Um, so it just it needs to be more expensive. Um, and part of that needs to be things like um, probably a frequent flyer taxation. So it's not penalising the poorest people who don't fly very much. It's every time you take another flight, you get taxed progressively more so that actually it's the people that fly most who are paying the most. And that way, I mean, the modelling that's been done by various kind of campaigners and research organisations suggests that the market kind of takes care of itself. So if something costs a lot of money, we don't do it so much. Um, and that is better than telling people they can't fly or putting on a quota. You're only allowed so many flights a year because human beings absolutely hate being told what to do. You know, we cannot stand it. There'd be revolts. Whereas if we just accept that we can't can't afford to do something so much, we kind of, we're kind of OK with that. Um, so I think that's that needs to change. And then on the other side of things, it would be great to see train travel cost less or or at least have better protections for passengers. So when you're traveling kind of across Europe, one of the problems is you're having to buy tickets from loads of different train operators. There's no way to buy a through ticket. And so if one of your trains gets cancelled and you miss the next one. There's you kind of got very, very little consumer protection. Then you might have to buy a whole new ticket at full price. And that makes it very difficult to sell to people because they're obviously really anxious. Whereas if you're an air passenger on a through ticket, if one of your flights gets cancelled, it's not your responsibility. It's the airline's responsibility to get you where you need to go, um, to provide you often with accommodation or food in the meantime while you're waiting. Um, you've got very strong protections. This is in the in the EU and UK specifically I'm talking about. But um you know, so I, I think there needs to be more of a parity with that. I mean, you said loads of things I found really interesting uh, there. I, I just uh, managed to uh, come up with the article, which uh, research showed that 1% of people cause half of global aviation emissions. You know, it is about that frequent flyer side of things, and it, it must be possible to construct some kind of uh, tax where maybe, you know, the first flight is free but then after that there are additional costs to you know try and ensure that it's uh, it, that kind of uh, charge is spread uh, you know fairly across people and that could be you know a really good way of uh, going about it but uh, you know in terms of train tickets yeah that's constantly frustrating like I know I, I'm going to be traveling by train to the Alps this winter I've already booked my Eurostar for three different Eurostars for the different dates I know that I want to go and if I have to change them a little bit then you know you get a small uh, admin fee but SNCF don't put their uh, tickets on sale uh, until three months beforehand so I have to kind of wait I can't do the whole thing in one go I'm kind of ahead of the curve a little bit I'm getting the lower prices on Eurostar but why can't I just book everything in one go? Why Why do you have to wait, uh, you know, that long to be able to do it? And those sort of things are frustrating. And I don't mind going to individual websites to do that. But it would be much better if there was one website you could go to straight away. People know when their holiday is, when they want to go. They book their accommodation. They need to be able to book their train travel at the same time. And as we all know, whenever you have any kind of uncertainty, people, you know, like to eliminate uncertainty. So you can take that out of the equation and, it's that unfortunate that there are, you know, objections. 
that make it easier for people not to make those decisions. Uh, however, you know, really good conversation. I think we, you know, there's so many different things I, I could talk to you about. And I think, listener, if you if your interest has been piqued, you should definitely go to the go to the book itself. I just wondered if you had uh, Helen any kind of advice for anyone, uh, basic advice for anyone who's looking to go flight free, uh, you know, make that switch or just, you know, cut down the number of flights they take in general? I think uh, one, yeah, it's just that mindset thing I already mentioned, you have to start thinking of of the journey as part of the trip, because lots of people will say to me, oh, but I don't have enough, you know, if you haven't got that much annual leave, it's not really fair to ask people, because they're still thinking of it in that sense of the journey just gets you there and then you need as long in that place as possible. Whereas if you mix that up a bit, actually, it's fine. And if you take advantage of there are overnight trains and there are overnight ferries and they can get you places quite quickly because you're using that dead time when you're asleep to travel. And it means often, actually, you can get to a place within a day or 24 hours um, that otherwise might seem quite daunting or lengthy. Um so you've got to be smart about it as well. But also just like, I think the important thing is to get yourself excited about the idea of traveling this way. Um, so often my first tip is, if you haven't been to his website, go to seat61.com. Um, it's a guy called Mark Smith, um, AKA the man in seat 61. Um, and he's, it's amazing. He's just kind of plotted every single journey you could possibly want to do, not flying from the UK to literally anywhere you can think of um and it's really practical and helpful because it tells you you know you need to buy it from this website this is how much it will cost this is where you're going to stop for lunch you know it has everything you would need there's even pictures of this is what your cabin will look like so you feel a bit more confident um and that kind of thing for me i love planning holidays like it's it's as fun as going often <laughs> like that sort of build up where you're going okay and then I'm going to go from here to there and I'm going to do this and so I think visualizing it that way and really really starting to get excited about uh, your trip is one of the things that's helped me make that switch I mean that I don't actually miss flying because I've been too busy planning other more fun trips yeah, it's a lot more interesting, uh, you know, thinking about, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, connecting a train somewhere or, or working out the best way to get an overnight seat than trying to uh, book your parking at Gatwick, for example. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Excellent. Well, thanks uh, so much uh, for all of that. Um, I have one last question for you. Have you actually managed to go skiing yet since your uh, pledge? I have. Yes, I went last season and I went back to Les Arc, my, uh, my home resort. Yeah, uh, which incidentally is one of the easiest resorts, I would say, to get to by train because it um, you can get the direct. Uh, there's like a ski train. It's, it will be running again this season, won't it? It, it will be. And I've reported yeah. uh, uh, on that uh, for the podcast before. So you went on the travel ski direct train from St Pancras to Bourg-Samaris. I did. And so you go all the way there. And then if you're going to another resort, you get a transfer up, which is fine. But if you're in Borg, you literally get the uh, the funicular up the mountain and you're in Les Arc, which is just it's so easy. I would say it's so much easier than than flying because we used to get most people flying into Geneva. And then it was like, honestly, a four hour coach back to resort. I mean, it's not it's not quicker or easier to fly in a lot of these cases. 
Yeah, for sure. And what about, uh, so you did that last winter as I did uh, as well. So you went uh, out on the overnight uh, journey and then came back on the direct one through the day. Uh, for this winter coming, they've actually switched that around. I don't know if you're aware of that. So decided based on feedback from customers, are going to do the direct during uh, the day and then the overnight one coming back. Because, you know, I was very happy to be, you know, one of the first people on the slopes on the uh, on the Saturday morning. Uh, however, I was pretty knackered because I didn't get a very good night's sleep. How was your sleep uh, overnight on the way out there? Yeah, yeah, it wasn't great. It wasn't great. Um, I was a bit like you, I, and I hadn't been skiing for, for a while. So I was just, I was, you know, over the moon to just be there. But I did sort of have like a child, I sort of crashed about halfway through the day. I was like, Oh, my gosh, no. <laughs> so I think that's probably quite a good call as 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 fun as it was you are in a seat it's not like a sleeper train where you have a a berth or a bed to sleep in um so you're you know with the best one in the world you're not going to get there refreshed um so i think that's a great shout yeah well that's why they've changed it based on feedback so you know the uh, the slightly uh, less comfortable uh, journey back will now be you'll be arriving back into london and you have all of sunday uh, to recover and you know i would point out as well that les arc is a you know brilliant place to travel to by uh, train i've often uh, done it before as well going with eurostar changing in paris and going down there and actually les arc is very focused on sustainability and they have been offering the funicular that you refer to going up from bourg saint maurice to les arc is Free to anyone who can prove that they've travelled by train uh, to uh, the resort as well. So that's a real advantage as well. Well, that, that's brilliant, uh, uh, Helen. Thanks so much for that. Your book, uh, Zero Altitude, How I Learned to Fly Less and Travel More, is available, as they say, in all good bookstores. And um, I also see that anyone wanting to, to see you kind of in person can go to uh, an online event that The Independent is uh, organising coming up, uh, hopefully, just after I've uh, sent this uh, live, there's a virtual event for advice on your next holiday, which you're hosting with Simon Calder. So um, thank you and enjoy your travels and look forward to uh, following them online. Thanks very much, Helen. Thanks for having me.